We have a very special guest. This is Jason and Rachel Ballard, all the way from Vancouver, BC, where the weather's even worse than here, if that's a thing. Welcome. Uh, Jason, come on up. So you may or may not recognize Jason. As Gerald said, we're about to kick off our fall alpha course. And Jason is a pastor from Vancouver, which is a very similar city, but also is part-time on staff with Alpha Canada and is the brainchild behind the Alpha Youth Series, uh, the film series for Alpha Youth, which has kind of transformed the Alpha Film Series as a whole. And so this guy, he would never say this, but this guy's film series that you and a couple of buddies put together has now over a million people have gone through it. So it's a pretty it's cool, over a million teenagers yeah, basically have gone through this eight-week film series about Jesus of Nazareth. So we asked Jason just to come down and to talk to us about Jesus and the why behind Alpha. And I know that for some of us, at least for me, you know, growing up in the church, there's just, like, I hear the word evangelism, which is not even a word used in the New Testament. And, like, as West Coast people like to say, it's a trigger word for me. <laughs> like, I just, um, which is such nonsense. But, um, but it, it, it makes, I just feel weird. Like, there's a part of me, it just, all of a sudden, I default to sales pitch and PR, and it's churchy, and it's weird. But you have done, Alpha in general, and you in particular, have done such a great job of just space for mm. people that don't follow Jesus, for our friends and family that don't follow mm. Jesus in a safe space to talk ah, about this. So cool. we're so happy that you're here and we love you. Thank you. And Rachel's thank you for coming. Have fun. Will you just make some noise and welcome yeah. Jason Thanks, buddy. Love you, buddy. Appreciate that. They've been telling me all day that the seven's the best. And so <laughs> don't let me down. Big week, anyone back to school this week? Big week in our house. Uh, we've got three kids, Rach and I, our oldest is Hudson, who's five. Is it up? Oh yeah. Huddy is five, he started kindergarten this week. Mary is three, and uh, she started preschool for the first time, and Millie is one, and she felt left out, so she wanted a backpack and insisted on it. And uh, this is our world. Uh, I'm like really emotional because of just chronic sleep deprivation as a result of these kids. And so if I just start crying, like in, in the first service this morning, somebody's like, man, I just watching you, it just felt like you were on the edge of tears. And I'm like, it's not because of the content. It's just general sleep deprivation. Um, I really like those kids though. Um, Hudson, Hudson's like my best friend. He's like, gone through a couple different fads. Like he was really into like building a treehouse, really into Lego. His fad right now is cash, um, like <laughs> money. And uh, it's kind of like this got the Scrooge McDuck thing going on where he just wants to collect as much money. He found out that bottle cans are worth money. And so he's been trying to see if he could use his money to buy bottle cans off people. I'm just trying to help him understand that he needs to pay less for the bottle. Anyways, it's an exciting time. <laughs> And I'm hoping he grows out of the cash infatuation stage, falls in love with things that are more good for the heart. Um, please pray for Hudson and our, our family. I want to teach tonight out of Mark chapter 2. But just before we dive into the text, you can start flipping there. I just want to say a few thoughts about this idea of inviting someone to Alpha. Uh, maybe let me rephrase it. I'd just love to tell you a few stories of invitation of just personal friends of mine. So the first one that came to mind, because I was just thinking, man, I just, who knows what could happen with an invitation to Alpha? Or forget about Alpha, an invitation to come and see Jesus for themselves. 
Alpha is just one of the ways. But I think about my friend Alana. And so Alana's life was radically impacted. She's a single mom. She was in a season of life that was really challenging. And there was really a, a growing deep deepening longing in her heart for something more. And she just had remembered seeing like Christians and sort of seeing something in them, but didn't know even how to begin to engage, right? Like in that conversation. And so she got this random phone call from an old neighbor that she hadn't seen for a while. And this neighbor asked her, do you want to go to Alpha? And then neighbor explained what Alpha was. And it was like, she said, it was like, this is what I've been like longing for. Of course, yes. And so she did, you know, eight weeks of Alpha and then went on the Alpha weekend. And on the Alpha weekend, somebody prayed for her. And then in that moment, you know, the, 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 what she was learning about Jesus here and what she was experiencing here connected in that moment of prayer ministry. It totally transformed her life. And I met Alana because she was leading Alpha at one of the campuses of our church. That's how I met her. But here's what's really cool about that story of invitation. The guy that invited her, uh, him and his wife were just praying, uh, God, is there anyone you want us to invite to Alpha? And Alana's name came to mind. And the reason why that's special is because they hadn't been neighbors for some time. So much time that like, she, he didn't even have her phone number. So he had to go kind of looking for her phone number, call the friend, do you, do you have Alana's phone number? Tracked it down, calls Alana on, on, just, on just, I think God would have me call her. And on the other end of the phone call is met with someone who I care about deeply. And I didn't know her before she was a follower of Jesus. And I see just the vibrancy in her life. And just so thankful that this guy took that risk and invited her. And I realize that for some people, like, you're like, I tried to invite my friend Alpha. They said no. And I have a bunch of, I know a bunch of people who it took four or five times of being, you know, kindly invited. Not like aggressively invited. Kindly invited. You know, another six months later, just checking in. Do you want to come? And then finally saying yes. But who knows what could be on the other end of an invitation. And so I think about Alana and this person that was praying. So I don't know, you know, what it looks like for you, but what would that look like to say, God, is there anyone, even before you leave tonight, God, is there anyone in my life that might be an invitation away from an experience like that. Can you imagine you called somebody and they're like, that's what I've been waiting for. You know, Alana, she was waiting for someone to invite her into that space. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, or just last weekend, we baptized a guy called Nicholas. Now, he'd been coming to church, and I think he was coming because there was a girl he liked at church, um, which is why most of you are here, I think. Um, and uh, he was just wrestling with with. He, it just wasn't connecting. And so somebody invited him to Alpha and he said, okay, I'll give it a try. And this is so interesting what he said because he's obviously, he's been baptized. He made a decision to follow Jesus. It became real. The thing that was the turning point for him was hearing somebody else at the table say that they were a follower of Jesus, but that following Jesus didn't mean that everything in their life was going well. And he goes, that was the moment where I realized that this could be something that was real for me because he had that objection and thought that everybody was saying that it was one thing. And then he heard like, and what's interesting is he heard somebody like him explain their story across the table. The last story that comes to mind is uh, of a girl called Delaney. Now I met Delaney, uh, she was sharing her story just like Matt was tonight. How great was that, Matt sharing his story? And I was doing the same interview at my church. I met Delaney and I, I'm hearing her story of how she kind of found herself on Alpha and then giving her life to Jesus. And it started a lot of years before. She got invited to some like drop in basketball thing in high school. And she met Christians there, but she had no interest in Christianity. All she remembers is that the Christians were nice. That's all she remembers. What's really cool, like I think it's like eight years later, she ends up making a decision on Alpha to follow Jesus. I te she texted us this week to kind of help make sure I had the details of the story accurate. And this is the first time she mentioned the name 
of one of the guys at that drop-in basketball. She remembered one of the names. And I know that guy. And the reason why I think that's so special is because tomorrow I'm going to call that guy. And he might have no idea that that moment eight years ago when he was hosting this drop-in basketball thing as trying to outreach to his friends. Because sometimes that's how it feels, hey? You do these things, but you don't see where it goes. And so for Delaney, her story has all these different pieces. Like, she was going to a counselor, and I think she had a hunch that the counselor was Christian, so she began to pray, like, God, if, there, if you're real, could you somehow, like, give, like, help maybe, maybe the counselor could say something. And so in these conversations with the counselor, she found herself saying um, about where she, her expiration, her counselor was like, maybe you would want to try chatting this stuff out on Alpha. And so she Googles Alpha and finds herself on the Alpha at our church. And I see all these different pieces of the puzzle, all these different players, all the way through to like the person hosting the table. I just think how amazing that like this is how it works. And all those people in Delaney's story thinking, man, how exciting to be part of it. Maybe some of them don't even know. Like my friend Simon might have not, doesn't know. I can't wait to tell him tomorrow, bro, remember that drop in basketball thing that you did? Look what God did through the story. And so who knows what God might do is you guys kind of go on this journey of invitation. And for some of you, you might not be a follower of Jesus and you're here tonight and you're thinking, man, I've got a lot of questions. I think Alpha's probably the best place for you to wrestle those out. Okay, um, enough about that. Mark chapter two, let me read the text, we'll pray, and then we'll see what it might um, have for us tonight. Is that okay? You guys doing okay? Seven, you're not disappointing. You're firing me up, seven, I love it. You guys okay over there? Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. <laughs> they lift their cups. They're not a vocal bunch, but cheers. I like that. That's like universal for all good, my man. All good. It says this, uh, verse 1 through 12 of Mark chapter 2. It says, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there's no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Let me just pause for a moment and invite us to engage our imaginations. Like I know that there's sort of this, sometimes at church we just are so used to hearing scripture read and we maybe, I don't know, somehow it goes in one ear. But like did you note the vandalism. You guys caught that, right? That like these guys are thinking, there's no room. I know what we'll do. We're going to jump on the roof and we're going to burrow our way through the roof to lower. I mean, this is a wild scene. Like just for a moment, have a a, a bit of empathy for the homeowner, right? Like this is a very interesting moment. It's a desperate moment. There's a recklessness. There's like, they're vandalizing for their friend because they heard that maybe he could heal our friend. And then Jesus says to them, When he saw their faith, their friend's faith, which is really cool that he says this, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's a brilliant question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 8. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man, now son of man is like one of Jesus' favorite nicknames for himself. And it's a call back to the book of Daniel where there's some prophecy about a rescuer to come. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of that. And he, so this is one, so he, essentially he's saying, 
I want you to know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. I love verse 12. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. God, thank you so much for your word. God, I just pray in these moments that you would speak to us and that you would move in our hearts. God, we just thank you for your great compassion and love for this guy demonstrated in the story and um, for these friends and their recklessness. And God, I pray that you would even, as we're chatting about this tonight, put that kind of recklessness in our heart for our friends. And God, like this individual who met you, God, would we have a personal encounter with you tonight? We don't want to just be in the crowds listening. We want to meet you. So would that be so, Jesus? We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. I think one of the big ideas about this passage of scripture is this idea, this contrast between the crowd, the spectators, and those who engage personally and participate. I think we're meant to see this idea of there's a lot of people in the room coming to see Jesus, but one person meets him personally. I think there's another dimension to this. There's a lot of people that see Jesus heal this guy, but four guys get to go home saying, we were part of that. And there is a temptation, at least in our culture, to be spectators of the work of Christianity, spectators of the ministry of Jesus as he works in and through others, but not participate. But God's desire is not that we would just be spectators, but participants. And so watch for that thread in the story. Watch for that thread in the story. Okay, first thought, let's go right to the top of the story and let's just kind of move our way through. I just want to look at a few different parts of the scripture. Verse one says this. It says, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there's no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. And so one of the the thing that's obvious in this text is that it says Jesus again entered Capernaum, which means what? Jesus was there before. And to find out what Jesus was doing last time he was there, you just flip the page to Mark chapter one, you see that he was like casting out demons and he was healing the sick. And wherever Jesus went, he was teaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And so what happened in Capernaum is gossip began to spread about Jesus. People began to spread gossip about the things that happened to Jesus last time he was there. So now Jesus enters into town again, and people begin to whisper around the city, Jesus, Jesus is back. The guy, Jesus, is back. So much so they all want, they have this interest. They want to see for themselves. They've heard about him, but they want to see for themselves. And this is a really common rhythm we see in the Gospels, this idea of people hearing of Jesus, being invited to come and see, and then Jesus inviting them to follow. To hear, be invited to come and see for themselves, and then receive the invitation to follow. So that's what happens here. These people, they hear the gossip. And it makes me wonder, what kind of gossip is going on around Portland about Jesus? Like, think about Capernaum. So people were healed last time he was there. He's casting out demons. And so imagine you're like a mom, and your son is sick, and he leaves in the morning, and he comes home, and he's all better. Maybe he walked out the door with a limp, and he came home, not limping. Say, son, what happened? I met Jesus. He healed me. You better believe that that mom is gossiping about that story. She can't help it. Like she's going to get water the next day. She's with her friends. She's like, you're not going to believe what happened to my son. And that's actually how Christianity has grown. People like you and me 
not having all the answers. So often we feel just overwhelmed. We have to have all the answers. We need to be able to explain everything. Sometimes we're paralyzed by the idea of even talking about Jesus because we're afraid. What if I get asked a question I don't have the answer to? But what we see happening here, what brought these guys to this radical position where they brought their friend in front of Jesus was just gossip. And there's a lot of ideas going around Portland about who God is. You just have to watch the news for a little bit. And there's a lot of different things being said about who God is. People are overlaying their political views and people are having this understanding about God that's turning them off. And so I think there's, there's an imperative that we would let the good gossip of the kingdom be on our lips. That people would overhear the stories of life change. And there are amazing stories of life change in this community. And we got to be, be people who share, or maybe we're invited to be people who share stories that are miraculous, but evenly seemingly mundane. Like, I love the miraculous stories, and we need to share them, of people coming from addiction and being set free. People who are sick being healed. People radically transformed. You might feel like, but I don't have that kind of story. But you do. You've got a profound story. Like, my, my brother's been um, fighting cancer. He's doing really, really well for the last four years. He's been fighting brain cancer. It's a battle, and he's, he's doing awesome. But his story isn't miraculous like, this thing doesn't affect me anymore. I'm totally healed. His story is, God's good in my life in the midst of the pain. And that's good gossip. That's like, remember the story of Nicholas I shared earlier? He said the thing that was the turning point for him was sitting across the table from somebody saying, it's not all perfect, but I follow God in the midst of it. So I don't know where you find yourself. I don't know what conversations you find yourself in. And I know there's this pressure to just not talk about these things. But we must let the gossip of the kingdom out of our mouth. We must let the stories come out and that Portland would be filled with the gossip of the kingdom of God happening in this church and many great churches around this city. And what's so amazing about this story is they hear the gossip and these boys on a hunch, on a hunch, they bring their friend. What if Jesus could do for our friend what he did for them? And I just wonder as the gossip goes out from this place, there'd be an increasing desire in the hearts of people to come and see for themselves. And I feel like whether it's your home, like your table, or your life, something like Alpha, or gathering like this, your Bridgetown community, whatever it might be, that's the invitation to come and see. The gossip goes out. Come and see for yourself. So the gossip, they, they hear the gossip, they bring their friend, and they, they, they want their friend healed. So they, they go up on the roof. It's this dramatic scene. They start digging a hole. They lower their friend down in front of Jesus. And Jesus' response is peculiar. Did anyone feel that way? Jesus says to this, I mean, the need is obvious, right? The need is really obvious. There's a paralysis of his body. And Jesus says to the guy, son, your sins are forgiven. This is classic Jesus. Vintage Jesus. He never does shallow. He always goes to the deepest need. He always goes to the deepest needs. As if he's saying, I see the paralysis of your body. Now, let me be really clear. He deeply cares about this guy, the whole person. God cares about the whole person. He heals them. That's how the story ends. But it's as if he's saying there's a deeper need. And maybe you've been even just hanging out around church. What Jesus is always doing is trying to get to the core of who you are. He wants to do an internal renovation of your heart. Jesus isn't just interested in the shallow. He wants to go to the core of who we are and change us from the inside out. So Jesus comes into this guy's life and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Probably not what he expected. 
But this idea of sins forgiven captures the idea of the deepest need in the human heart. The deepest need in the human heart is that we would know God personally. And so when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, it's a declaration that that which might separate you from God no longer needs separate you anymore. This is an incredible announcement of access to our Heavenly Father, of acceptance and unconditional love. This incredible announcement. Now what Jesus is not saying is that somehow the sin is what's caused the physical paralysis. If you go to John chapter 9, uh, the disciples actually ask that exact question about somebody who's blind. They say, Jesus, like, who sinned? Was it this guy or his parents that caused him to be blind from birth? And Jesus says, it w- neither of them. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that God wanted to show his power at work in this person's life. So that's in John chapter 9, verse 2 and 3. And so I think that's a really, like, that's a really fair question. Is that what Jesus is saying? That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is there's a deeper, more significant need that I want to get to first. And in this way, Jesus is like a great ER doctor. You know, if you go into the ER room, and I know a lot about the ER room. I watched seven seasons of Grey's. And so <laughs> it was a dark, it was a really dark time in my life. Um, but I learned a lot about the emergency room and um, prepared me for this moment. And um, in the emergency room, if you were in a car accident, you come, you might have all sorts of injuries, but the ER doctor is going to go to the most life-threatening, the most significant, the internal bleeding. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's like the great ER doctor. He's saying, I see the paralysis of your body, but there's a deeper need. We all have a sickness of the soul. I feel like it's hard for us to even talk about this. I feel like so much of the cultural current around us says, you just need to add one more thing to your life. You just need to like go on this diet or buy this product or date this person or whatever it might be. Add this to your life and your life will be better. And it's as if Jesus is saying, there's nothing you can add. There's something deeper that you need. There's a soul issue at the core. And when I hear this story of this, this guy, I can't help but wonder how often he dreamt about the day that he could walk. I wonder if at times he found himself thinking, if only I could walk then everything would be okay. And I'm speculating about him, so I, then maybe that's not true. But what I know to be true about your heart and my heart is that we're really wired to worship and to fixate on things and give them almost like God-like power. Like you might say, man, if I could just have this job, or if I could just have this boyfriend or spouse, or if I could just have this house, or this income, or this status, or this many followers, if I could just hit this thing, then I would be happy. Then I would have full life. And if you live long enough, you've experienced those things that you long for and they never offer what they promised, did they? But our heart is so fixated and what God desires that we would have fullness of life. And what's true for this guy, and I want to be really sensitive as I say this, is that even if it was just his body healed, he'd walk out that door and still not know fullness of life. You see, the number one need of the human heart is restored relationship with God. And that's what Jesus came to bring. And when we look around Portland, we look around our friends, I believe what God wants us to see is that there's a deeper need and that he invites us, like these friends, to be part of seeing lives transformed. Jesus cares so much about the heart. Holistic healing. There's a girl who did Alpha and um, there was this talk on Alpha, on healing. 
And after the talk on healing, um, there's just an invitation just to pray together if you would like. And so this, this youth group of 20 kids in the basement split into a few groups of this church in Richmond, British Columbia. A couple of friends start praying for this girl. And I got an email from the youth pastor, and he said that she wore long sleeves all the time because she had scars up and down her arm from self-harm. And as they were praying for her, they watched as the scars on her arm disappeared. Just amazing. I love that. But what I love so much more is that the God who healed the scars on her arm has the power and longs to heal the scars on her heart that caused her to self-harm in the first place. And as we look around, you might not see the scars on the outside, but there are scars on the heart. You might feel these scars. And sometimes our eye, we're just so busy, we don't see the need around us, but there is a soul craving. There is a soul need at the core level, at the heart of this city, in the hearts of people in this city, and God would have us see that, his desire is to heal people from the inside out. The Pharisees, the religious teachers, respond to this statement. This, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, this incredible announcement. And they ask this question, who can forgive sins but God alone? And it's a brilliant question. The reason why they're so frustrated, because they're like, this is blasphemy, this is brutal. This is, and the reason why is because their power, their political religious power was rooted in the idea that they were the brokers, that their religious system at the temple, that they were the brokers to mediate between men and God to offer the forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he just declares over them, son, your sins are forgiven, this is deeply threatening to them. And so they ask this question, what's this guy talking about? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I love this question because in this question is a deep truth. Only God can forgive sins. And they're, they're they're, they're struck by it because if Jesus is claiming to forgive sins, he's claiming to be God. I was walking around the streets of a city by myself one time. I was on a speaking engagement, and I was just like, between, I ended up in this, this, this liquor store. I wanted to buy a gift for the host home. And I got in this conversation. He says, why are you here? And I said, oh, like, at this church, and da, da, da. And he goes, you know Jesus never claimed to be God, right? And this is a really common question. I love that he had this question. We had this really interesting conversation. This is one of those, those examples in Scripture where you see Jesus consistently acting in the place of God. I remember thinking to this guy, like, oh, man, I don't have much time to chat about him. And so I was like, oh, dude, you know, just down the road, there's a church that's doing Alpha. And he says, I've seen the sign for that before. So just down the, down, down the road. And he goes, but I don't believe in God. I was like, no, no, like, it's people asking questions like that. They're wrestling with that question. Did he really claim to be God? Who was this man, Jesus? In this, this is one example where we see Jesus claiming to be God, acting in the place of God. And what I love about this, this bold declaration is it's first and foremost an announcement. Son, your sins are forgiven. So often we feel like the message of Jesus, the gospel, the good news, is like a checklist or a formula. If you do certain things for God, then you will find relationship with God. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is first and foremost an announcement of God's love and favor. Son, your sins are forgiven. I know the language of forgiveness of sins can be lost in us, but this is, a, this is, this is an announcement of access to God. This is an announcement of the favor of God. This is an announcement that whatever might stand between you and God can be eliminated through Jesus Christ. This great announcement. The message of Jesus is that before you made a good move, 
before you had a good thought in you, he declares forgiveness over you. And to become a Christian or to begin a relationship with Jesus is believing in this statement, Jesus is God. And he's willing to forgive my sins. I don't have to earn my way in. It's such an amazing announcement. And this is the message we get to herald. This is the message we get to announce. And it's a message that we need to believe daily. So often in my walk with God, I find myself believing that somehow my sins, I have to sort out before I can come close to God again. And when I read this story, I find myself praying, God, would my heart believe? I pray, God, could I hear you declare over me, Jason, your sins are forgiven. And I don't know your name, but I'd love to say to each one of you that Jesus' announcement over your life today is that in him you have forgiveness of sins. And following Jesus is this daily wrestle to realign yourself with that truth that I'm accepted, I'm loved by God, and to live from that place. It's a beautiful announcement. I'm really mesmerized by the friends in this story. I find myself just like so interested in them. Like they're just so passionate. Like this conviction, like we've got to get our friends to Jesus at any, at any cost. We've got to get our friends to Jesus. I love their recklessness. Like if, if this is what they're willing to do for their friend's physical need, what would they be willing to do if they really knew what Jesus wanted to do in his life? You know what I mean? Like they're willing to vandalize this house, embarrass themselves because they're like just on a hunch that if I get my friend in front of Jesus, he could be healed. Imagine if they knew the spiritual need, the deeper need in their friend's life and Jesus' willingness and power to heal him. Imagine what they'd be willing to do. I love their recklessness. I'm praying that God would give us that kind of recklessness. Not that we'd have to conjure up some sort of abstract, guilty feeling because guilt is a horrible motivator. It only lasts a moment. But that God would help us see the need. That we would see the deeper need. I think that at least in my life, I find myself maybe believing the lie that maybe they don't need Jesus. Maybe that wouldn't be good news. It might be good for me, but maybe not for them. But there is a deeper need. And they had a recklessness for their friend, for the physical. Imagine, imagine if they saw the full picture. And the thing I love about them is they weren't embarrassed by the people around them. <laughs> like, no shame. No shame at all. They're just like, I don't care what people think right now, especially they didn't care what the owner of the house thought. Side note, there's some commentators that believe that this might have been Jesus' house, which is super interesting. It's not conclusive. We don't know for sure. But it adds another dimension to that idea of when he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Dual layer now. He's like, forgive you for the roof, and I, <laughs> and I forgive you for your sins. You know what I mean? Like, it, ultimately. You know, but we don't know that for sure. That's a side note. You can talk about it in community group. Um, but I love that they're not embarrassed. I find myself often embarrassed to gossip about the good news of the kingdom of God. Sometimes I find myself embarrassed even just to do a gesture of love to a stranger or even my neighbor. Hey, can I help you with something? It's amazing how just that feel, like, isn't it interesting? It can paralyze us. And I know there's a cultural current that, that tries to stir us towards individualism and away from certain types of conversations. But there's this, this fear that can come over. I love their recklessness. And I love the lack of fear. 
And you could conclude, well, maybe these guys, they were just like the types of guys that I don't care what people think. But I don't necessarily think that's what's going on. I think what's going on here is that their love for their friend and their desperation to see their friend healed overcame their fear of what people thought. They're so aware of their friend's need and they're so convinced that maybe Jesus could heal them that it helped them overcome their fear. Love will do that. Love helps us overcome our fears. I wonder how long they talked about that day. Imagine a week later, they're hanging out, the five boys. Boys. Remember last week? That was unreal. Like, I don't know if they fully grasped the significance of what Jesus declared over this guy. But imagine they did. Ten years later. Remember when Jesus led us? Remember when he said that because of their faith, we were part of that. We got to be part of seeing our buddy healed. What could be better than that? What in this life could be better than God including us in rescuing someone's life? And that's what he's inviting us to do. Imagine if God would use our life to connect somebody to him. It makes such a difference. Death to life. Bondage to liberty. Despair to hope. That's what Jesus does. He transforms lives, families, communities, and he invites us to join him in this mission. I remember at the beginning I was talking about how this is a story about crowd and spectator. I wonder if there's anyone here and you've been observing Christianity and Jesus, and I wonder if tonight your heart is saying, I want to not just be a spectator, I want to know him personally. And one of the steps to knowing him personally would be to put your faith in his announcement that what would stand between you and God has been forgiven. That through Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. That tonight, to bet on that reality, not that you have to muster your way all the way, And if you're here tonight and you say, hey, I don't want to be just in the crowd, but I don't know if I'm ready to take that full step, my encouragement for you would be engage somebody. Wrestle with that conversation. It might be on Alpha. It might be with somebody here. Begin to wrestle that through because there's an invitation. Jesus wants us to, Mark wants us to see in this account that it's possible to be in the crowds but not meet him personally. And the work that Jesus wants to do in our lives is personal. He wants to transform us from the inside out. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, there's an invitation to move from being a spectator to a participant. Four guys in the room got to be part of Jesus' healing work in his life. And they would have talked about it forever. Just that day. And that invitation is for you and for me to say, God, I want in on the action. God's not looking for the most articulate. He's not looking for the most wealthy. He's not looking for the most well-connected. 
He's not even looking for the most moral people. He's looking for willing hearts that would say, God, I don't know what it looks like, but would you use me that people would come to know you? What I love about these guys is it's like, it's like they fumbled through the whole thing. You know what I mean? Like all they did was sort of fumble their way into it and Jesus did all of the heavy lifting. And that is what it is to follow Jesus. We sort of fumble our way through. We put, we put what we can into it and then he does the heavy lifting. And that's like evangelism. That's like Christian mission is like, it just as we begin to wrestle through, like I don't know what this looks like, but I just want to get my friend in front of you, Jesus, and he does the heavy lifting. And if that's your desire, one of the best places you could start is by praying for your friends that don't know Jesus. That really is what we do when we pray for our friends that don't know Jesus. We just take our friend. Like I remember when I was in high school, I started praying for my buddy Jared every single day. He and I were on the tennis team together. And I prayed for him every day for a long time. And every time I'd pray, I'd say, God, I'm just putting Jared in front of you. Would you work on his heart? God, I'm just putting Jared in front of you. Would you work on his heart? And I remember being inspired to pray for my friends because at, at youth one, one, morning, one Sunday morning, at our youth group, one of our youth leaders, Tara, she was speaking and as she was speaking about like loving her friends that don't know Jesus, she pulled this piece of paper out of her pocket and she unfolded it. I remember seeing like the piece of paper, it unfolded like it had been opened and closed like a hundred times. And she turned the piece of paper around and I, I remember seeing all the different colored ink on it. Some names circled and some names underlined and there's just lists of name in different colored ink. And as she, she turns it to us, she goes, this is my game time list. This is a list of all of my friends I'm praying for that don't know Jesus. She begins to cry and she quickly wipes the, the tears away from her eyes. And, and I'm like 15, 16 years old and I'm watching this. And I've never seen somebody weep for their friends that don't know Jesus. It wasn't like a guilty moment. It was just like this moment, I just saw it. And it's just, what I saw was somebody that was sharing in God's heart for her friends that don't know Jesus. And I remember in that moment saying, God, would you do that in my heart? And that morning, Tara was like, why don't you start praying your yearbook every day? She said to the whole youth group, and it just, it just stuck in my mind. And so before bed or in the morning, I just pray one page of my yearbook in high school. And slowly God just began to soften my heart. And it was like God helped me see the deeper need. It's like God had caused me to see the deeper need. And so if you don't know where to start in the activity of bringing people to Jesus and letting him do the heavy lifting, start in prayer. Make a list of your colleagues. Make a list of your friends. Just begin to pray for them. Saying, God, I don't know how this whole thing works. I know you do the heavy lifting. I just want to put them in front of you. And then do it every day. Do it every day. I remember hearing a lady speak that said she prayed for her husband for 26 years every day before, she, before he gave his life to Jesus. And I remember thinking, God, could I be the kind of guy that would pray for my friends for 26 years if that's what it meant, that they'd come to know you? There's two words that I want to put before you that I think help us in this journey to bringing people in front of Jesus. It's invitation and hospitality. And I know that hospitality is at the heart of this church, this idea of creating the space. And I believe this is the best place where people can come and see Jesus for themselves. So many people in, in our church community that became Christians on Alpha, they said that one of the things that helped them believe the most was the love that they saw between one another. When people hear the gospel and they want to come and see, where they come and see is often in the lives of followers of Jesus. Come and see Invitation and hospitality. Invitation is intentional. I think sometimes in a fear of being pushy, we can decrease our intentionality and just become passive in this conversation about sharing our faith. You know, in this idea of like, man, I don't want to be pushy. I don't want to be like a salesman. None of us want to be that. I get that. So we can find our intentionality goes down for fear that our intentionality would be mistaken for pushiness. 
But I think invitation is this beautiful opportunity to be intentional but not pushy. And you can invite people into a conversation. I remember one time hearing like a seminar that was like all about how you can like trick conversations to become about Jesus. Like you can do anything and it's like, you know, like, oh, pretty nice carpentry. Do you know uh, Jesus was a carpenter? <laughs> you know. And um, what I found really helpful is that you can invite people into a conversation. Hey, I don't know if you know, but I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. If you ever want to sit down and chat about that, I'd love to have that conversation with you. Some of your friends are that invitation away from having that conversation with you. You've been a friend with someone for a long time. They see something in your life. And they're just one invitation away from that conversation. And it doesn't have to be awkward or pushy or weird. Say, hey, if you ever want to sit down and chat about this one time, I'd love to chat with you about it. Hey, we, we're getting together once a week on Alpha. If you want to come along. An invitation. Invitation, hospitality. That's where we start. I want to end by... Um, inviting God to give us tears of compassion for the lost. How could we end up with a passion for our friends like we see in this story? I think the first thing we do is we ask God. We ask God, God, give me your heart for the lost. What is God's heart for your friends? What's God's heart for your coworkers? I think one of the things that friends do is they share passions together, right? Like what matters to Rachel, my wife, inevitably matters to me. And I think one of the things about being friends with God is saying, God, what matters to you, let it matter to me. And in Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus, God in human form, the visible image of the invisible God, looking at a crowd. And it says that when he saw the crowd, he was moved in his gut. The word is, he had compassion on them, but the, the word literally means he was moved in his gut. It wasn't like this like surface, like, it wasn't like a soft pity or something. Like he was moved at the core of who he was when he saw them. He says because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He longed for them to know their maker. And then he turns to his disciples and he says to them, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers. So we have this incredible invitation. Like Jesus is showing us. Matthew chapter 9, we've seen up until this point, Jesus doing this incredible work. And then there's like this pivot point in the text where we begin to see God's plan unfolding. You see Jesus, you know, healing the sick, casting out demons, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And then, then all of a sudden Matthew in this like very cool literary moment, he turns to his disciples and he says the plan begins to unfold. That his plan for transforming the world is to work through people. And coupled with this great invitation to mission is this great motivation for mission, which is compassion. And I love that about Jesus, that he was motivated by compassion. I know that sometimes following Jesus is obedience and faithfulness. And there's not always like an emotion to go with it. But I believe that God would share his heart for us to give us a deep compassion, not a fleeting emotion, but a deep compassion that drives us. And there are tough conversations, and we live in a tough moment to have these types of conversations. My prayer is always, God, would people see the compassion in my eyes? Would somehow they see in the countenance of my face and how I treat them, that I love them? And would that love move me to overcome my fear, my embarrassment? Where do you start? 
You start by asking God to share his heart. Begin to pray for people by name. And then slow down enough to see the need. I know this is the heart of this community, is to be people who are slowing down. Because the busyness of culture and the busyness of life cause us just to fixate on our own needs. But God wants us to do as we slow down is to begin to see the need around us. I remember when my brother Kevin was first diagnosed with cancer, his good friend Dustin took him out on a boat ride. And it got dark outside. And so they're out on this boat in these first weeks of Kevin going through this journey. And Kevin told me, he goes, Jay, that night... I saw the stars for the first time. And obviously Kevin had seen the stars before. He'd been seeing them his whole life. He'd seen the stars for 32 years. But he saw the stars. And I know that we see the people around us. But I believe that God wants us to see the need. To see the need. To see people the way he sees them. Let me pray.